Welcome to Orphans No More, a media extension of Justice for Orphans, a ministry dedicated to rally the church for the cause of the fatherless, inspiring, educating, and equipping believers to care for vulnerable children, and supporting those who have heard and heeded the call of James 127. Here's your host, Sandra Flack. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. That is Micah 6.8. Welcome to Orphans No More, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children in crisis through adoption, foster care, and kinship care. I am your host, Sandra Flack, fellow adoptive mom on the journey with you. This episode kicks off our foster care focus series for the month of May, which is National Foster Care Month, and we have an amazing guest with us today. But first, I'd like to remind you that we are changing the name of this podcast to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey. As I mentioned in episode 320, we started as a radio program seven years ago. We've been strictly a podcast for the past three years, and now we know who our intentional listeners are, you guys, the adoptive foster and kinship parents. So as of June 1st, 2022, we will be appearing in your podcast lineup with the new name, The Adoption and Foster Care Journey. Same host, same content, same mission to serve you, but just a new name. And if you are already a subscriber, you won't have to do anything, but notice that it is a new name, but the same show. If you're not yet a subscriber, please go ahead and subscribe today. Uh, When listeners subscribe and leave a review, it signals to the algorithm that this show is relevant and important. And we want all adoptive, foster, and kinship caregivers to find this show uh, a vital resource for their parenting journey. So let your fellow adoptive and foster friends know about it. Go ahead and subscribe and leave a review. If you do find the show an encouragement, let us know. Uh, If you would have a comment or a question or a suggestion, please reach out. You can reach me directly by email at sandraflackjfo at gmail or through our ministry website, justicefororphansny.org. Now stay tuned to the end of the show as I have an announcement about some new resources and things that are coming up uh, that you may be interested in. So our first guest during Foster Care Month is Jelana Goebel. Jelana is a speaker, author, advocate, and with her husband, Luke, parent of five children ranging in age from preteen to young adult. She is founder of the nonprofit Embrace Oregon, which became the catalyst for the organization Every Child Oregon. Her passion is to enlist the collaboration of faith-based networks in robust and respectful ways with state child welfare agencies to pursue positive outcomes for the most vulnerable children and families in their communities. In 2019, she published No Sugar Coating, a book with practical suggestions and insight for prospective foster parents. And she's about to release her latest book, A Love Stretched Life, Stories on Wrangling Hope, embracing the unexpected, and discovering the meaning of family. Please welcome Jelana Goebel. Hi, Jelana. 
Hey, Sandra. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Um, just finished reading your book, uh, A Love Stretched Life. And there's so many things that I love about it, which we're going to unpack as we uh, have our conversation today. Uh, and I always love to start at the beginning of adoption and foster care journeys. So let's start there. What led you and your husband, Luke, to become foster parents? Well, after I graduated college in 1999, I went to a Guatemalan orphanage. My husband and I got married a few years later, and I really wanted him to come back um, and experience uh, living in Guatemala, going to language school and engaging with the kids, some of whom were true orphans and others were just there temporarily. And so we had a place in Antigua. And we actually became house parents where we would kind of do a, a house swap where the, you know, the people that were caretakers of the orphanage would come to our apartment in Antigua and we would go there for the weekend to help care for the kids. And that was really the place where my husband's heart, Luke and my heart were kind of aligned to, to ask the question on the plane back to New York, well, where are the vulnerable children here? Because I didn't grow up like knowing anyone that had done foster care. I'm sure I was around people that had been impacted by foster care, but I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't aware of that. So I only kind of had this hazy concept of what foster care was. Um, and that is what brought us to the doors of the Department of Human Services in New York to say, hey, we would like to be respite foster parents. And it was kind of our idea to do the same thing that we had done in Guatemala, which is like a, hey, we can take care of, you know, you can do anything for 48 hours. Like we can take your kids for the weekend or a short amount of time. And as is often the case, Sandra, when people are willing and they show up, they sometimes can get pulled into a higher level of commitment. And that is absolutely what happened um, with us. And, you know, we were 25 and we got two boys um, placed with us in this therapeutic foster program in New York, which was like the highest level of behavioral needs. I mean, we were coming into this with zero parenting experience, which is just laughable, right? To be like, oh, what great candidates for like these really <laughs> challenging kiddos. But, you know, we did the best we could. I think we really, really, really quickly were exposed to the just selflessness that any parent knows, you know, um, but we were in just a different stage to have, you know, a six and nine-year-old boy and be 25-year-old foster parents that just quickly put us in kind of a different category than our friends, like kind of the relatability factor was gone. Um, and as I share in a love stretch life, pretty quickly, we realized that we would not be able to physically keep the nine-year-old safe. And so that was, felt very devastating to me. Um, it kind of felt like all of the best practice that we talk about of like keeping siblings together and all the things that like are great, are great and true, but are one thing to kind of take nice, neat notes <laughs> at a foster parent training class. And another thing to live it out, we quickly realized that we needed to, um, you know, that we needed to just parent the six-year-old. And that was really, really difficult, but we ended up parenting and having our focus on him for a year. And then through a series of circumstances, we lost touch with him for quite a long time. Yeah. So yeah, that was, they were your, technically your first placement, correct? They were. Yes. Nine-year-old. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. So you, you were doing, you were in the Buffalo area in New York uh, during that time. And then after you no longer had the boys, you actually relocated out to the West coast. That's correct. And, to Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
you decided to pick up foster parenting again uh, in Oregon. So tell us about your first placement in this new chapter of fostering on the West Coast. Yeah. So in between, um, you know, we ha- we did have some other foster placements when we were in Buffalo, but really Royal, our our six-year-old little guy was, you know, the, the one that we'd had the longest and who we were most connected to. By the time we moved to Portland, Oregon in 2007, then we had two biological girls. One was an infant, one was a toddler. Um, and I made what I thought was going to be an introduction call to our local, you know, County Department of Human Services. And the person on the phone basically said, you know, Hey, uh, tell, tell me a little bit more. And I just said, Oh, well, I'm just gathering information for like, you know, to put in a file drawer for some time down the road. I remember saying down the road and, um, her ears definitely perked up when she realized that we were still certified foster parents, which meant they could kind of fast track us. And so a week later we got a call asking if we'd be willing to foster a six month old baby boy. Um, all we were told at the time is that we would be his fourth place where he would have lived in, in that six months period. And that, you know, his dad was incarcerated and his mom's whereabouts were unknown. Um, and, and so that really started a a journey. And by the way, I, I, I feel like it's important to say, um, my son, Micah's uh, first mom, Jennifer, his biological mom is someone that I'm very, very close to. We, we co-present uh, to state caseworkers monthly. We talk to prospective foster parents. And so I am not sharing any aspect of her story that she does not readily share with others. And she's given me explicit permission to share. So I just, I want to make sure people know I'm not sharing, you know, not just my part of the story here, but uh, she has changed my life, Sandra. I, I had no idea walking into a juvenile courtroom. I'd never had the privilege of engaging with a of a biological parent before of a child that I'd fostered. But I saw this woman, um, court is the most awkward, awkward thing. Um, kind of reminds me of like the worst of junior high, like everybody's standing in circles and kind of whispering and looking over before you <laughs> go into this, you know, double door co- courtroom. And um, I just saw this woman and um looked a little disheveled and I just went up to her and I just said, hi, are you Jennifer? And she's like, I am. And I said, well, hi, I'm Jelana. I am your son's foster mom. And I brought this for you. And I handed her an eight by 10 photograph um, of her beautiful baby boy who was around six months at the time. And she just burst into tears and it wasn't anything I was planning to say, but I just like wrapped her up in a hug and just said, I, you know, when you get your son back, I want your bond to be strong. I just want you to know I'm rooting for you. Mm. Well, those kind of became unbeknownst to both of us, like this guiding, you know, this guiding light for like what the next 13 years would look like. We certainly, she nor I had it any inkling that we would be like considered family one day, or that we'd walk this road of life together, all the things. I mean, I just didn't have a textbook for engaging with a biological parent. Um, and she didn't either. She is very open about growing up in the foster care system. And so I was even aware at the time, Sandra, that, you know, I heard the judge say, excuse me, I heard the caseworker say, to the judge, your honor, this baby is with an excellent foster family. And without even knowing Jennifer's background of growing up in foster care, it still felt to me like what an empty adjective, like, what does that even mean? You know, an excellent foster family. So because the office was pretty close to my home, I made the decision 
to do my own transportation. And part of that was just, I felt like in the best interest of the baby to have like less people kind of coming in and out, picking him up and dropping him off. But it was also an intentional move to just be able to look Jennifer in the eye and give her an update about her child and, uh, you know, just kind of share little things. And a few months of that, Jennifer just said, Jelana, I hate being at this office with my child because I grew up visiting with my mom in the same office, Mm. in the same room where I am now visiting with Micah. Is there any way that you could supervise visits for me outside the office? And I was like, well, I have no idea. Let me, you know, let me ask the caseworker. So I did. And she just said, your eyes are to be on that baby at all times. But yeah, that's actually great. You know, the more that they can get out in the community, the better. And so to make a very long story short, we ended up um, spending 150 hours together over the course of over well over a year. Um, And the plan was for him to be returned to her. And we would go to the zoo and the park and the community center and all these things. And through that time, Sandra, of getting to know Jennifer I mean, there was never like a sit down interview of like, tell me all about your life, but like we're driving around town and we're talking about her child and she's, we're kind of getting to know each other naturally that with the pieces that she shared of her growing up and of her, her life, which includes so much trauma and so much suffering. It honestly, um, just really made me realize like if I had walked in her shoes, there is a real good chance I might be standing in the same place where she's standing now. So how would I want someone to engage with me? Mm -hmm. I'm not going to lie. It was super hard. Um, it is really challenging. The premise of foster care, as you know, is to bring a child in to love them and to hopefully return them back to their family if they are safe and healthy. Unfortunately, in this case, um, Jennifer would be the first to share with you that she did really well when the biological father was incarcerated. And then every time he came out, he was just kind of like a rock that drowned her every time. And so the plan was eventually changed to adoption. Um, and we adopted her child, but we still like remained in relationship with her. And I don't want to communicate that it's all been like ponies and roses and rainbows, you know, skipping off through a, a field of wildflowers. I mean, we have had a lot of moments like when the plan was changed to adoption, it just was more of a tense time, understandably. Or when I had to say, hey, for my own emotional well-being, I can no longer supervise visits because you're not showing up consistently. And that is, you know, that's we need to go back to the office. There were a lot of boundary things that that um you know, just needed to happen. And there were a few circumstances where I had to like pass along an uncomfortable comment to the caseworker, which just felt like awful to me because I didn't want Jennifer to ever feel like I had was in this like gotcha, you know, mindset of trying to catch her screwing up so that I would somehow be able to adopt her child. Um, but you know, after, after several years, once the plan was changed, we did end up adopting her child. Mm. Well, like you mentioned, the goal of foster care is reunification when it's Mm -hmm. safe and prudent to do that. Um, And yet we hear people say all the time, they just couldn't become foster parents because they'd get attached and then they'd have to give the child back. And so often birth parents are viewed um, in such a bad light, Uh, but you, you actually, kind of took this on, I kind of see it as a ministry, right? You, you, it was an up and down, you know, twisty turny relationship, but over that time of supervising those visits, you began to build a relationship with Jennifer. Um, and which really, I, I can only assume provided some stability and, and you were pouring into her somewhat, um, and, and, and guided her along that journey. I, th- I think that's beautiful actually. 
Um, you know, we don't always hear that. We always kind of hear that birth parents are the bad guys, right? And mm-hmm. you were rooting for her, which I think is beautiful. Yeah, I really was rooting for her, Sandra. And also I feel like it's so important to just know that that like arrow of transformation was a mutual one. You know, Jennifer is very kind um, in, in speaking about like what our relationship has meant to her over the years. And also I have to say, like, I am not the same person that I was before. I mean, Jennifer and I are uh, separated in age by uh, six years. You know, there's not a whole, like you might look at us and it might be like, well, it seems like maybe you like, what's that different about you guys, but everything, the answer is everything, every single thing about our upbringing was, um, was different. And she's honestly given me a lens to see people and situations that I was just completely unaware of before. So it's been, I'm so grateful to her for being in my life and for changing me, um, as well. Wow. So now Jennifer, uh, so you adopted Micah, but then mm-hmm. Jennifer had a second son, Elias. Did you foster him? How did, how did that go? We did foster him. You know, I think what's partly unusual about our story is, well, first of all, Jennifer and I have the hope that one day our story would not be quite so unusual. I mean, that's why we do so much, so many co-speaking engagements together, really with the hope that like this wouldn't be so out of the ordinary, but um, unfortunately it is rather like out of the ordinary to have a foster parent working with a birth parent. And for that collaboration and relationship to continue from foster care into adoption. And then it's even more unusual for, you know, to have a full biological brother enter the picture of my son. And so now we are considered relative caregivers um, via adoption. Right. So I started out with like a stranger foster care, like, hi, how are you? You know, here's a picture of your son. And now we became relatives, um, via adoption. And so the state shoulder tapped us and said, you are this child's relative. He needs a foster placement. And we said, yes. And we fostered him as an infant and returned him to Jennifer. She was clean and sober for many years. Uh, she relapsed when he was almost five. He came back and lived with us for another year. Um, and he has been back with his mother where she has done an amazing job parenting him for the last six years. Um, he's been returned. So it is unusual that like we're continuing this journey with her um, <laughs> to you know foster and return. During that time, it wasn't like, see you later. I mean, she was coming to to church with us. She was hanging out, you know, at her house for Sunday lunches. We were doing holidays together, like all of that. And that we waited four long years before we welcomed her into the sacred space of our home. So, um, you know, a lot of people think I could never do that. And it's like, well, that I would never say that that's for everyone, but we just kind of took the slow and cautious, um, journey with her. And when the timing was right, we honestly didn't look back. And even when she relapsed and even when her child was living with us in foster care, um, you know, we weren't concerned about the fact that she essentially knew everything about us at that point, knew where we lived and all the things. So, um, yeah, Jennifer has been clean and sober for six years. It's the longest she has been clean since, uh, she started using, uh, as a preteen and she calls it the proudest accomplishment of her life. And it is, I mean, we're raising two full biological brothers, Sandra, 
across the same town from each other. We live about 15 minutes from one another. So it's been awesome to just be able to learn family history when I need it or to share grades or tips. I mean, it's amazing how the brothers are so similar. It's almost like this nature versus nurture experiment before our very eyes because there's two brothers two full biological brothers growing up in two homes across the same city from one another. So, uh, it's been wild and there have been times where it's been really hard. Um, and also I am so grateful that I did not get a future glimpse of what our lives would look like right now, because to be honest, Sandra, I wouldn't have understood it way back when I would have been like, what? That's weird. That is really (laughs) weird. Like, I don't want to have, um, you know, I I think I would have just really been concerned about how love could divide and not multiply. And now I feel like I'm standing in this place where I'm like, oh, it's so great for Micah to know that I love him and Jennifer loves him and and to stand in this place. I mean, he doesn't really know anything different. It's been this way since he was little, but I, I would have turned and sprinted the other way if I had gotten, um, a glimpse of, you know, some of the things, for example, Jennifer just tattooed an M on her hand for Micah and an M with a crown. And I think, you know, I think about her texting me that picture in the last year and, you know, for Micah going and posing with Jennifer and her wrapping her arm around him with a, you know, M for Micah tattoo around him. I would have been like, Oh, I would have felt totally threatened by that before. Like, what does this mean? Like what's going on with him? What's going on with her? She trying to undermine me. Like, I think I would have come at it from a place of feeling very insecure. Yeah. And um, I'm just really grateful that I didn't get that future glimpse that it's just kind of been walking that path and doing the next right thing. And, you know, uh, it's been, it's been hard and it's been emotional and yet I can't really imagine it any other way at this point. Yeah. I think that's the grace of God, right? He only really lets us see the parts he wants us to see that we're ready to see (laughs) and then doesn't unfold the whole thing right away. Or we might be scared and run the other way. Um, exactly. Yeah. I love that. So now you continued to foster, I assume, because you got a call from DSS uh, to um, foster a baby for the weekend. (laughs) So tell us about Charlie. So our, can you pick up this baby for the weekend call from our Department of Human Services Child Welfare is now my 10-year-old son, Charlie, who we said yes to for 48 hours and has been with us ever since. And um you know, I, I barely even checked in with my husband, Luke about it. I mean, I did, but it was kind of like, well, you can do anything for 48 hours. So sure. You know, I think it would have been a very different story if somebody had said, okay, pause, you are now going to say yes to a child. Um, and you're going to continue saying yes and yes and yes and yes. And you're going to eventually adopt him. And he is going to have some pretty significant, intense, lifelong, um, invisible brain-based disability needs. That would have been a totally different story, but that was not what I was asked going back to what you just said about knowing the full story. I was asked, can you pick up a baby for the weekend? And much to our delight, you know, we, I said, yes. Um, it has certainly exposed me to the reality, Sandra, that every yes has the ability to change your life. Um, I think, you know, sometimes, uh, in, in every community, I think, but especially sometimes in Christian communities, there can be a tendency to 
underplay trauma to kind of just say like, okay, if it's for, to have it be a little bit more formulaic, like if there's a right amount of like love and discipline and nurture and structure plus Jesus, somehow that equals like a clean, a clean slate. Um, you're starting from scratch. And I just think it sounds silly when it's put that starkly, but I do think that that's what people kind of want to believe because we want to believe that love is enough to just overcome. That's a lovely storyline. Right. And unfortunately, it's not. <laughs> Unfortunately, it, you know, love is everything. And yet there are so many things that we need to be equipped yeah. to, to handle in order to sustain this parenting journey, which looks vastly different than parenting neurotypical kids. Um, so that's the, that's how we got Charlie into our family. Yeah. yeah. And I can, I can so relate to that because I know when we, we brought in our daughter who was eight um, through a kinship uh, situation. We didn't have adoption or radar uh, on our radar at all, adoption or foster care. Um, we just said yes, because she was a relative and we were a family. She needed a family and we would treat her like one of our own and we would love her and we'd all live happily ever after. And it doesn't really work that way. It doesn't. Wouldn't it be so nice if it did though? If just intentions were enough, like I have good intentions here. Yeah. And, and love is necessary. It's vital, but it's not enough. There has to be more. And I know, um, you know, I know Charlie has a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder diagnosis as do two of my sons um, as well. Um, So I'm grateful that you address this and bring awareness to FASD in your book. Um, because it is, it is very challenging. It's an invisible disability. Like you mentioned, it's lifelong. Um, so would you describe some of Charlie's symptoms and how you accommodate him for success? Sure. And I also want to just say that I have like permission from Charlie to be sharing this about him as well. Um, you know, when Charlie was little Sandra, yeah, we just, I mean, he, he just perfectly adorable, looked really typical on the outside. Um, I think looking back, there's always kind of clues, right. But at the time it was like, well, you know, here's this fussy baby that sometimes has a hard time eating and never, ever sleeps, but Hey, you know, we don't know what his in utero conditions were like. We don't really know who his parents, you know, all the things. And so it just felt like for the first couple of years, he was late to, he, he never, ever slept and he was very dysregulated very easily. And he, he um, was late to get his teeth and late to talk and late to eat and late to walk and all these things. But it always fell right on that line of like, well, you know, kind of on the edge of not being anything that's super alarming, but like right on the edge of like global developmental delays. As time went on, it became more apparent to me having parented other neurotypical children, like there's more going on here than meets the eye. And I am really, I encourage parents when they have that gut to be really tenacious about that. Because if I were waiting for somebody to come to me and say, Jelana, this is what your son has. I am convinced I would still be waiting. So I really needed to put on that detective trench coat and that, you know, eyeglass and just be like, what is happening here? And Charlie wrapped up a slew of diagnoses, which all seemed like they kind of fit, but it was like, what is the landscape of this puzzle piece. Like these inner, these pieces are locking together, but I still don't know what we're looking at here. And it wasn't until I did a deep dive into fetal alcohol spectrum disorders that it was like all the light bulbs went off and everything clicked into place. Um, so Charlie was officially diagnosed with fetal alcohol syndrome, um, when he was four and, um, 
you know, I I'm really grateful to have that diagnosis because I think it has allowed me to cognitively understand Mm -hmm. and I'll say something about that. Cognitively understand that what he is struggling with is not his fault. Now with saying that, I will also say that having a cognitive understanding does not mean that your body does not feel the very real effects of the volatility or the unpredictability or the outbursts or all of those things. And so I think as I get older, I have more of a realization of like how, yes, like we can understand that this is not their fault, but still be very much affected um, by kind of the ripple effects of this one family member that can whip things up like a hurricane for the rest of us. Um, you know, for some of Charlie's skills specifically, it's kind of a mismatch of, of abilities, which can be really confusing. Charlie can, you know, do some things that are pretty typical of a nine or 10 year old. And then in other areas, it's, um, like a three, four, five-year-old. And so, you know, they often say with fetal alcohol that kids are approximately, and again, every child is different and this manifests differently because that's why it's a spectrum disorder, but, um, developmentally, um, often operated about half their chronological age. And we have definitely found that to be true. And I think as children get older, those gaps become wider. Yeah. Yeah. I think they become wider, especially in the school age years, teen years. And then, um, my daughter, who's 31, who came in as kinship, we would have never, um, in a million years, even thought that an FASD would apply to her. But as I learned all the primary characteristics, the symptoms, they also like every box, she checked every box um, to one extent or another and very difficult through, because it was like her whole life while we were raising her looking back. Now, I feel like we were always trying to sort of force that round peg into a square hole and you know it was frustrating for for her and for us parenting her and um, and then just a couple of years ago I had that revelation where I feel like this could very well apply to our daughter which means you know I just my heart breaks thinking how we didn't parent her correctly all those years and 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 you know the grace of the Lord is wonderful because we have a good relationship with her but now that she's thirty one. She's finally at the best place in her life, but it, so it sort of levels off is what I'm trying to say that the, that the school age years, you really start noticing a difference. Um, and then through those teen years, which are, are, are I don't mean to scare you, but <laughs> I've, been, I've been warned. Everyone has warned me. You're not the only yeah. one. They're kind of like, well, if you think this ride was rough, buckle yeah. up your seatbelts for the next yeah. couple of years. Yeah. So yeah. I. I'm heeding yeah. that advice. I yeah. kind of miss those days where I feel like, well, all I had to do is keep them safe from like, you know, falling off of high places or, you know, breaking things. Now it's yeah. completely different, but um, you know, but she struggled through her, through her, her late teens and through her twenties. And mm-hmm. finally the past couple of years have, 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 you know, really, but that's, it. you know, it's kind of like with any of us, right. When, by the time you reach 30, you have friends that are younger, friends that are older, and everybody just sort of gets along. So it's not so glaring, the dismaturity piece, yes. um, but, but it definitely is, is challenging along the way. Um, the, is Charlie in school? Oh, that is a sense of uh, heartache right now. He is not in school right now. Unfortunately, um, 
while, you know, I think the school is well-intentioned, they have, they are just so ill-equipped to engage him. And so despite our best tenacious advocacy on so many levels with so many different things, we actually did pull Charlie from school this, um, this fall, just because we saw his self-esteem plummeting as a result of others, not knowing how to engage with him. And while we hope that this is, you know, we're, we're really open to exploring what this looks like in the future in terms of the best place for him to, to grow and rise up to the highest level of his capability for right now, we know that, um, you know, being taught by my husband and I, we switch off, um, is, is what's best for him for right now. And that's, I had homeschooled a lot of our other children in the early days. And then our two youngest were in school and doing pretty well. And then COVID. So then when we were talking before we hit the record button with COVID, my youngest son just really struggled with just that, um, you know, it turned his whole world upside down and he needs that structure and that, um, you know, that, that routine and predictability and um, all of that was turned upside down. So we ended up, of course, school shut down. So everybody was home and didn't go back in 2020 um, until the fall. And he made it the first month. Um, and there were so many, our district where we are in, in upstate New York had so many just strange um, changes to the school day because of COVID. Like they, they dismissed early, no lunch, uh, no PE, no, uh, just you know, even in his special ed class, they could, the special ed, his special education class could meet in person, um, which was wonderful because that's what, you know, those children need, but they were all having to do all of their schoolwork off of a Chromebook, um, which just every day when I would pick my son up and I picked him up from school early so he wouldn't have to ride the bus and wear the mask for longer mm-hmm. uh, during the day. Um, he was just so dysregulated and yeah. had so, so much stress and anxiety that it was like, this is, you know, to avoid a mental health crisis, we pulled him out that October and we've been homeschooling him ever since as well. Um, and I just, I learned along the way that, you know, even special education teachers, occupational therapists, speech, you know, speech therapists, all wonderful and necessary parts, uh, you know, play, play essential roles, but that doesn't mean that they're FASD informed. Right. And, and so I found I was having to educate everybody. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, one of the big symptoms is impulse, lack of impulse control. Yeah. you know, I had a seventh grade, his seventh grade teacher, first parent teacher conference was like, you know, he has a, he has a hard time with impulse control. And I'm like, you think, because that's like a primary character. And that's when I realized I've got to educate the educators because they don't really know they might, you know, they they don't really know. So that's made it challenging also. And I I think they just struggle all the more. And, you know, as as hard as it is for, for us to have to homeschool each day, it's turning out to be the best thing for him, you know, and, and it has other, other challenges where we're done, you know, we're done with school by 1130 in the morning. Mm-hmm. And then I have to pivot and do, I work from home doing our ministry stuff, the podcast and all that. Um, and then that's where he's 
you know, he, he really could benefit from a support person and some, and some more structure than what I can mm-hmm. provide. But yeah, no, I hear that. I really resonate with, with so much of what you shared, Sandra. I think it, it is challenging. And, you know, as a former teacher myself, I, I have a ton of compassion for Charlie's teachers. Cause I look at like, it almost feels like this house of smoke and mirrors, this diagnosis, you know, it's like, what, like, what do you mean? Like, he'll be able to write two sentences today, but the next day it will all be gone. Like, what do you mean short-term memory loss? What do you mean differing abilities from different days? I mean, it looks so willful. Um, and unfortunately, you know, I know my son can come across like a prickly porcupine oftentimes, which doesn't help people feeling super compassionate and warm towards him, um, the way they're engaged with. And, and it's, it's, it's challenging. It really is challenging. And so I'm like, oh gosh, as a teacher, I don't think I would have understood this unless I were living it, but there's like this gap between living it and then trying to explain it to others, even in the world of special education and all these specialists. So, um, for the same reasons, that is ultimately why we are, um, homeschooling Charlie in this season is because, um, nobody's learning if they're dysregulated, right? Right. Like school, school becoming like a really mediocre at best babysitter is like not what we're going for. Um, granted, I mean, it would be great to have a safe place, um, for, for, um, our child, but he was not emotionally safe there. And there got to a point where, um, you know, oftentimes when physical restraint is, is used and overused, then it's not even a physically safe, you know, place. And so our kiddos have so, so much stacked against them that I feel like being regulated and having shorter school days, but actually learning more because you're regulated is what has been best for our Charlie as well. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's an accommodation really, you know, really successful. So it is definitely um, challenging parenting children with trauma histories and neurodiversity, like an FASD. And that can really take a toll on marriages. And I know you talk a little bit about this in your book too. So how have you and Luke navigated this, you know, crazy roller coaster when it comes to your marriage? Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, I have to say, you know, I feel like we've made a lot of mistakes and I, you know, I don't feel like I'm coming speaking from a place of like arriving, you know, (laughs) with my five bullet points of how to have a thriving marriage in the midst of chaos with trauma and disabilities. (laughs) Um, So I think with that caveat being shared, um, I think so much of it comes down to just prioritizing time together. Honestly, I feel like it is so easy, Sandra, to just become logistical business partners about who needs to be taken, who, where, and what's the appointment and kind of like, you know, shooting out these pithy little pieces of information that are not connection points in a marriage that are just like, you know, talking about the kids. And I think what's, what's, I think what's been true in our parenting experience with Charlie is just this notion of like, we have four kids under the roof of our home and the slice of the attention, parental attention pie does not get gobbled up equally. Like if we are not intentional, one child can take up the entire pie. And I think that can spill over into our marriage, just, you know, even in our, in our times together to be like, well, what do you think we should be doing about this? Should we be pursuing this therapy? What do you, what about this medication or whatever it is? So I think just having those concentrated 
times to connect. Um, I know oftentimes we, you know, asked our counselor has asked, uh, has advised us over the years to just ask each other some consistent questions about like, what are you dreaming about? And like, how can I support you? And I mean, that's part of how a love stretch life got written as me saying, I really feel like this is, this is my time to write. And, you know, it is a, I signed the contract for this book. Sandra, back when we all thought COVID was like a one or two month thing, you know, before I was aware that I was going to have four children under the roof of my home for a solid 18 months. Yeah. We were very shut down here in Oregon. So, um, you know, it is, it's, uh, yeah, his partnership has been invaluable, invaluable, but, um, you know, I think that, I think the prioritizing time and let me be clear for me, there is really nothing about go, you know, getting dressed to go out of the house at eight 30 or nine o'clock at night. That's super appealing. I know that's kind of a fuddy duddy thing to say, but I'm like, for us, like connection time can even be setting an alarm on our phones that once Charlie's in bed, we meet downstairs and like, look each other in the eye for 20 minutes, you know? <laughs> and, and that's like our, our time. It doesn't need to be this like big deal or getting a sitter or whatever. Um, And then we also have been really intentional to create community around us. And um, we have a monthly group that meets at our house that we call Family Feast. Um, On one of our times away, a couple of times away, we um, just said, what are we missing? And at that point, it was becoming increasingly difficult for us to be a part of any traditional, like small group, uh, Mm -hmm. type thing. It's just like the time doesn't work. The amount of people doesn't work. Our child's just regulated. We're always leaving early. So we just thought, what would it look like if we had some families that struggle in similar ways as ours? Um, you know, kids that are coming from trauma, foster care, adoption, disabilities. What does it look like if just once a month we said, we're not going to make this super complicated, just we'll provide a main dish. You bring whatever you want and we're going to have dinner together. Um, and we're going to, we're going to talk about deeper things and we're going to connect for three hours, once a month on a Sunday that's been going on for gosh, six or seven years now. And that has been such a life giving group for us, but we had to create that Sandra. Like that was not out there. We had to really take inventory through some of our times of feeling like, gosh, this journey is getting a little lonely. This is really lonely. Like we know other people are out there dealing with this. Um, but the day in day out feels lonely. And honestly, um, even though it's, it's a small thing, it feels like a huge lifeline for all of us to have the kind of, I get it factor without having to explain. Yeah. Yeah, That was going to be one of my questions because adoptive adoption, foster care, you know, and even kinship care can be very isolating to families and no one really understands the journey except for those who are on it. So I love the fact that you created community um, for for your family. Um, Do you have also, in addition to that, um, friends on the journey that you connect with support groups, things like that. Yeah. We've been a part of a support group on and off. Our church offers one, um, led by some really, an really amazing couple that have like 25 years into fostering. I mean, like that kind of longevity in the foster care world is almost unheard of. Um, but they just do such a good job, um, of creating a cultivating just this loving accepting group. So we've been a part of that. We have several friends, um, that are, you know, foster and adoptive friends. And I also have several friends that have nothing to do with foster care and adoption. I think that that's, that's, um, so important too, because while the, I get it factor may not be, be there in the same way. I still think it's really 
easy to kind of become insulated and just only hole up with people that can identify. And there's something so beautiful about that. And that's such a comfort to me. And yet there's also like, I don't want to throw out the fact that I've had like friends from college and, you know, all these friends from childhood and all these things. And so I just am trying to do my best to, to hang on to those, those tethers from many different places in my life and create time, um, knowing that there is something, uh, rich in those experiences yeah. for me, even if they don't have firsthand relatability. Yeah. Just those relationships can even be self-care in a way because you totally relationships. Yeah. I love that. So I know once Charlie came, I understand it get, it can get complicated. Did you continue to foster after that? Are you currently fostering? Yeah. Such a good question. You know, um, we did continue to foster, but not long-term. We just like Charlie, we were just open on that list. Although we said for reals this time, you guys, like <laughs> we're not just doing a 48 hour um, thing. There have been a few times where, uh, you know, we've said yes. And, uh, and it's turned into, you know, a few weeks or whatever, but the reality is that as time has gone on, we really need all hands on deck. We have a, we have an aid Sandra that helps us just to keep um, our son in line of sight. Um, Mm -hmm. so to even do like ordinary things like make dinner or help another child with their homework, like we need somebody to be watching Charlie. And so that's really, um, you know, in the summers when I was teaching and my husband was teaching and, and we could, we could afford a little bit more margin, but that's just not where we're at. So last summer, we actually let our foster certification lapse after um, nearly 20 years. And, and when I say that, I think people think, oh my gosh, you must've had a ton of children over, over the years. I think people oftentimes, you know, picture like a you know, 12 passenger van or something, which is lovely when that happens, but that's not all foster families. Right. Um, and I just was like, no, our capacity was just these intentional, more short-term yeses where it's like, Hey, this child's going to be in a hotel or he can be with you for the weekend. Well, we have capacity we can, but not, you know, long-term capacity. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, I think just living out this, this yes to those that we've said a forever yes to, um, for us in this, in this particular place where we find us, this is an daily, all hands on deck feat. <laughs> yes, I can, I can relate totally. And I'm sure our listeners can as well. Um, another, another area where I feel like you and I are a little bit similar is, and, and I see this with other foster and adoptive families. Sometimes once your yes is on the table there, the Lord kind of draws you in, um, in other ways and ministries can start and nonprofits get started. So, um, you, uh, launched what's called embrace Oregon in 2013, I believe. So tell us how did that come about? So, you know, through a relationship with my certifier, which in Oregon is the person who, you know, comes and does the walkthrough of your home and make sure you have a fire extinguisher and that whole jazz. I just basically said, you know, what happens when kids are removed, from whatever situation, you know, usually having to do with substance abuse, untreated mental illness, domestic violence, incarceration, what happens when they've been removed from that situation, but they have yet to go to a foster family. I mean, the priority is always for kids to be placed with relatives, but we know that over 50% of the time that that can't happen right away. So, um, you know, what happens? And she really painted this picture of just scrambling each and every time for the caseworker to do a, you know, run through McDonald's or whatever. And sometimes the kids are in the very cubicle listening to the person trying to find a home for them. And just thought, well, there's so many things here and they, they all can't be solved at once, but what seems very 
um, easy as a community offering would be to say, you know what, caseworker, every single time you're bringing a child into the office, we will have a beautiful welcome box um, full of art supplies and snack, healthy snacks and toothbrush and toothpaste and a flashlight and a stuffed animal and books. And I mean, all sorts of like age appropriate things for, for kids. And, um, that kind of became the first step. I got a grant through my home church, Imago Day community to, to launch this. And that really became this very humble catalyst for the community to begin to ask the larger questions, which is why are children in my community sitting in a government office waiting for a foster family in the first place. And it was really just this very um, unassuming idea of providing boxes that led to this deeper question, which led to the creation of what was called at the time Embrace Oregon, where, you know, our pillars were really like, how can we be hospitable to those impacted by foster care? What are some volunteer opportunities that make sense? I mean, so oftentimes the narrative is like, well, become a foster parent or do nothing. Those are your options. And it's like, wait a minute. Like there's so many middle of the road options here. We need to be inviting people to plug in at at the capacity that they have to give and not be all or nothing. So we started um, engaging with with our child uh, state's child welfare agency about like, what are some of these opportunities? And then inviting the community, um, businesses, churches, really just saying, hey, we can can point fingers and we can kind of lean away and cringe, or we can lean in together and say, hey, the fact that these are our most vulnerable children really should not be this responsibility should not just be for those wearing state government badges. Like this is where the church should be. Um, And people of goodwill, you you know, even if they're not coming from a faith context, like there's something for everyone to offer um, in this place because there's, it's such an overwhelmed, um, such an overwhelmed deflated, you know, system that has so many, so many stressors for, kids and parents and foster families alike. But that is really the heartbeat of Embrace Oregon is to make the journey a little lighter by sharing with people that they're not alone by having some tangible goods that are provided. But it all started with just providing this simple little box Mm -hmm. um, and that being a way for the community to begin to dip their toes in the water. And so now we're like 30,000 boxes strong. Welcome boxes are coming out of our ears at every child welfare office. And, you know, we say, hey, if if a parent misses a visit, give them a welcome box, you know, like it really any excuse to just give a welcome box. Um, but that, uh, what was originally called embrace Oregon has now tipped into every child, which is a statewide movement here in Oregon. All 36 counties have, a um, an affiliate that is uh, engaging the principles of hospitality and volunteer on-ramps and foster care recruitment in their county, um, under, under every child. So I'm privileged to still be a part of the team. I work part-time because uh, needs underneath the roof of my house are so all-consuming, but it's just been such a privilege to realize that like God uses, first of all, the least likely. (laughs) And it would be lying if I was like, well, my vision, Sandra, was that one day we would have this large (laughs) thing, you know, like, no, I just, I asked a question about like a need and all that I did was like, say, Hey, this is a way to meet this need. Hey, community, yeah. this is a way to meet this need. And it's just grown from there. And so mm-hmm. I feel super jazzed and humbled to be a part of it because I think it's one of those things where 
a shiny binder and a glossy, you know, 10 point plan would not have gotten us to where we are today. And that's just because of the dedication of so many people leaning in. Yeah. I love that. Love the impact you're having there. So in your book in chapter two, which is titled Royal Storm, and I don't want to give away your whole book. We want people to to go read your book because you actually get to reunite with one of your children that you had in foster care. Um, So, but I love this quote. So I'll read the quote and then I just want you to explain, you know, unpack it a little bit. So you write, foster care was my first personal handwritten invitation to meet people, places, and situations I'd never encountered, wrecking my life as I knew it while saving me from unexamined privilege. Yeah, I know that sentence kind of a mouthful, but thank you for reading it. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, wrecking my life, yet saving it, I feel like has been the perfect metaphor for me, you know, with foster care. I feel like my life is not the same. I can't go back. I can't just be like, okay, la, 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 you know, plug my ears and be pretend that, that, um, you know, these families that are so impacted and these children, um, you know, that are so impacted by whatever their, their parents or guardians are struggling with are not there. I feel like once you see it, you see it. Um, and yet, as I said before, this was something that I was, um, I just was totally unaware of like, what are the reasons why kids come into foster care and what does it actually boots on the ground look like for a family to struggle with a methamphetamine addiction in the midst of poverty, in the midst of, um, domestic violence, all these things, you know, I just feel like over 20 years of welcoming in and also welcoming in the stories that come with these precious children, it has really given me a new lens, um, I think for my faith, a new lens for the world, um, that is, uh, I mean, it certainly has like darker hues, right? Like Mm -hmm. all of these things are not cheery, happy things. And yet it is reality. And I do feel like it is a privilege to just be able to hold that tension of like the beauty and the ache of the world. And I feel like that is really what foster care invites us and and adoption and, and, and walking alongside people that come from hard places like that. That is the invitation is to simultaneously hold because rarely is it all one thing or all the other, but I think foster care and adoption um, can just put those, those technicolor glasses on and you're like seeing it in 3d, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I love the quote. So the book is a love stretched life stories on wrangling hope, embracing the unexpected and discovering the meaning of family. Jelana, why did you write this book? I wrote this book. This is honestly the book that I, in many ways, like wish I could have, could have read when I was starting my, my foster journey. I think, um, I wrote a book a, a few years ago and it's just a short little primer called no sugar coating. And it's kind of like, here's a few bullet points of, of things that I wish people had told me practical and emotional things about foster parenting and adoption. But this just felt like it was the story behind the story. And I think as time goes on, Sandra, it's easy to forget the details of all that God has done. Honestly, I think, you know, in the midst of it, it just felt like, wow, like there's so much going on. There's so many roller coasters and mountains and valleys and a sheer cliff on this side and a huge mountain on the other. And I think as time goes on, people can say, what, what was your story of foster care and adoption? And, And for me, it felt like it was being reduced to the soundbite of like, well, it was hard, but 
here we are, you know, and it just felt like it's not honoring to the complexity of what I've lived and what I've learned along the way. And so for me, my biggest hope is that a love stretch life makes others, whether they do foster care or adoption or not, I think anybody who's, who can relate to kind of a gap between, wow, this is how I kind of envision my life to be. And this is the reality. And it doesn't mean that it's all doom and gloom, but it does mean that there's a gap there. Like my hope is that for people that fall, that can relate to that, that they would feel more encouraged and less alone um, Mm. in the midst of realizing that oftentimes we share about things when we're clearly on the other side, when it's a little bit tidier, when we can say like, this is God's faithfulness and, and kind of more palatable to others. And I just felt like, sharing vulnerably about my family in the midst of of this. And there's not, you know, there's nothing seasonal about like parenting a child with severe uh, developmental disabilities. It just felt like my way of um, acknowledging what, uh, how I've been shaped and changed and how it's forever impacted my family. So that's why I wrote it. Awesome. And it's it's such an encouragement also for, for those of us who are also on similar journeys to be able to read and relate to others, um, gives us hope, gives us encouragement and just inspires us to, to keep going, right. To stay the course. So when and where can our listeners find a copy of a love stretch life? It is available for pre-order right now, basically anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, Walmart, places like that. Um, but the book releases June 6th. Wonderful. And I know we're going to be able to give away a copy uh, for our listeners who are listening. So we are recording this in advance, but I'm going to take, I'm going to take a big step of faith and say, if you go to our website, justicefororphansny.org, there will be a place there where you can enter your name to win a copy of Jelana's book. um, And we will send that to you. And I'll, as, as we go on um, in episodes, I'll be able to, I'll talk a little bit more about it. and, And you can even see that on social media. Uh, for our listeners to know what to do. So we're grateful that we're getting a book to give away. Um, And Jelana, where can our listeners connect with you? Do you have a website, social media? I do have a website. Um, I'm not super active on social media, but I am trying, Sandra. (laughs) So Jelana (laughs) Jelana Goble is my Facebook and Instagram. And then um, jelana-goble.com is my website. Um, And I would be so pleased to engage and interact with your listeners in any of those venues. And we'll include links to your website um, and your book uh, in the show notes for this episode. So our listeners can easily find you that way. Um, so many of our listeners are fellow adoptive foster kinship caregivers. So Jelana, as we wrap up, would you share some encouragement for those of us on this journey? I think, I hope this comes across as encouraging. I think for me, one of the things that I have been continually learning Sandra is I alluded to it before is that the body really does keep the score. I think for many of us, we are like gritter, you know, grit your teeth and push on through because what other choice do I have? And I think for me, um, what has been encouraging is for me to find a counselor that I meet with regularly. It's been encouraging to have um, some inner circle trusted friends in which we can like laugh and cry in the same conversation. (laughs) Um, 
I think, you know, there are little ways that I try to infuse some life-giving practices. Um, for me, I'm really intentional to, um, when I sit down to like watch TV or watch a movie, it's pretty rare for me because I know what I need at the end of my day to keep going is to get in the bathtub, light a candle and to read a book. Honestly, it's like my, my bedtime, like routine, like probably five nights out of seven. I just, I just need that because it is so tough and wild and woolly under the roof of my home. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just, I'm aware of that. I am really try to be aware of social media um, because I think it can oftentimes for families like ours, make us feel really defeated when we don't have like super smiley pictures to put in a little box. Right. Um, so I guess I would just say, you know, that for me has been like things that I just need to be mindful of that. It's, it's, um, you know, when I'm feeling anxious or hypervigilant or all the things that I kind of must engage to honestly keep my son safe, it's not, uh, it's not like, because I, I have some faulty wiring, it's like over time, this is, um, a pain to me that, that is impacting me. And I think to stop and for me to recognize that like the impact and to try to find nothing's like earth shattering or radical, but to really prioritize the counseling, the meeting with friends, the small little things that help me get through the day so that I can wake up again and say, here I am. I'm going to do it again um, and face this day with new mercies to the best of my ability. Um, I think for me, it's been a few years where that hasn't always been the case. I feel like I've kind of learned the hard way about, you know, coming to the end of myself that like, oh, there really is wisdom in trying to um, take advantage of whatever little margin may be there or to create it if it's not there. That's my encouragement. I I hear you. I used to um, poo-poo self-care like, oh, I don't need that. But it was really COVID and all of a sudden everybody's home. Our kids are home. And I realized if I'm going to survive this, if any of us are going to survive this, I need to start taking care of myself a little bit and, and focusing on even those little times, a bath, a book, Mm. a candle, you know, so they are nurturing and they, they, they recharge our batteries and we definitely need that. They do. So Jelana, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today and for writing your wonderful book. Um, I'm grateful Uh, your readers are going to really enter the world of adoption, foster care, FASD, as you transparently share the realities, but also provide hope for the journey. So thank you so much. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Sandra. It was a joy to connect with you. Thanks. And thank you for listening to this episode of Orphans No More. I hope you found some encouragement by listening today. I know I'm encouraged by Jelana's story. Uh, be sure to check out the show notes for the episode where you can find links to Jelana's website and book. Uh, and also visit justicefororphansny.org for your chance to win a copy of Jelana's book. It is a love stretched life stories on wrangling hope, embracing the unexpected, and discovering the meaning of family. Very encouraging. I also want to let you know about uh, our FASD 101 training that we are currently offering online or in person. I've created a three-hour training about FASD uh, for parents and professionals. So soon you'll be able to actually register for it on our JFO website, We're in the process of updating our entire website. Um, So for now, if you're interested uh, in having me come present, or if you have a group, a support group, adoptive and uh, foster parent group, agency or organization, uh, you can contact me through my email, 
which is Sandra Flack, JFO at gmail.com, or reach me through the website, justicefororphansny.org, and we can get you set up um, for the FASD 101 training. We also have something very special brewing uh, coming up in September that you will want to be a part of a collaboration with another FASD adoptive mama. So stay tuned to this podcast for future announcements about a virtual support group that myself and another mama who you may very well know um, will be uh, moderating this support group and it'll be a monthly support group. So stay tuned for details. I'm just kind of giving you a little bit of a teaser on that. Uh, And don't forget the upcoming name change. This Orphans No More podcast will drop in your inbox as the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast as of June 1st, 2022. Again, if you've already subscribed, you do not have to do anything. Just notice the name change. Um, And if you haven't subscribed yet, I invite you to go on ahead, subscribe and leave a review. Thank you again for listening today. Uh, You can check out my family's uh, kinship and Ukrainian adoption story in my book, Orphans No More, A Journey Back to the Father. It's available wherever you buy books. Uh, You can order it from Amazon. If you do, I ask you to leave a review there. That's super helpful and such a blessing. If you'd like a signed copy, which includes a special gift bookmark, you can order that straight from my website, sandraflack.com. And my website also has a blog, uh, my blog that I write regularly, Um, And you can learn more about me and also contact me for speaking opportunities. And I'd like to give a big shout out before we go to our Care Portal County sponsors. Care Portal is a big part of our Justice for Orphans ministry uh, and Tri-Nuclear Corporation, Bishop Boundary Construction, and National Bank of Cooksakie. These businesses care about children and families in crisis, and they help us do what we do. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. You can also follow me at Sandra Flack. And I am grateful that you spent your valuable time with me today and thrilled to have you along for the journey. Thank you for listening to Orphans No More, for sharing what you've heard and praying for vulnerable children everywhere. We hope you are inspired to walk out James 127 in whatever way God calls you. For more information, visit justicefororphansny.org.